And welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you today. And my friends, we've looked at home education as something of the brightest light in America's future, largely because it's not plugged into the monopoly of thought that is imposed upon the masses through the public school system in which the fear of God is disallowed, in which you're not to teach the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And so if there's anything that is something of a threat to the rising secular state and the socialist humanist worldview that utterly dominates the thinking of almost everybody in the country, uh, largely because they were raised in public schools and public universities and imbibed deeply upon the wrong worldview, uh, that would be home education. It's the one part of modern existence in which there is something of a cutting away from the socialist system and uh, pulling away of the electrodes uh, in the 1984-ish state in which we're all supposed to be brainwashed into the same way of thinking. So the idea that there is a portion of the American population that have been exempted from the uh, new th- new thought, the one-size-fits-all worldview that is imposed by the public schools is, of course, anathema to those who believe that's the only way in which human society is supposed to function. Uh, that is, the zeitgeist has almost total control over the thoughts, the minds, the hearts, the souls of the next generation, and they don't really want anybody to interrupt that monopoly of thought. And that's why the Washington Compost article, a scare piece on the few Christian homeschoolers in America, is somewhat interesting to me. It came out, I think, just last week. Adam McManus, our co-host on this edition of the program, and the article is entitled How Christian Nationalism Seeped into Homeschooling, and references to Bob Jones University Press, Abeka, and a few other history programs that are available in the homeschool movement today. Uh, the movement, the homeschool movement, is described as originated among educators on the left in the 1970s. Homeschooling was increasingly adopted through the 1980s and 1990s by conservative Christian families seeking to instill their personal values in their children and shield them from an increasingly secularized public school system. Amen. The homeschool population consistently hovered at around 2 million students since then, a little more than 3% of the national student body, until the COVID-19 pandemic shuttered in-person classes to force children into Zoom classrooms. Uh, in September 2020, six months into the pandemic, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that the share of homeschooled children shot up to 11%, with the escalated numbers has also come increased attention to homeschooling. Uh, including this article on the part of the Washington Post. Now, these controversies have uh, prompted the release of politically charged homeschool curricula, referring to the 1619 Project, um, resulted in Turning Point Academy, a product engineered by pro-Trump talk show host Charlie Kirk that promises to deliver an America first education. So, you know, the article gives several examples of this sort of Christian nationalism that apparently is infiltrating home education. And we'll talk about that. We want to define the terms. Of course, terms are not wanting to be defined in articles like this. You certainly don't want to define the terms in articles like this. Much better to just uh, cast uh, Christians into some sort of a weird right-wing conspiracy thing and then say it's all happening with homeschooling, so we better do something about it, which I think is the underlying message that's coming from this article, Adam. Yes, we need to pass new restrictions and perhaps even 
down the road outlaw homeschooling because it's dangerous. Well, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman gave a talk at the gathering in October of 2022 for the James Dobson Family Institute in Colorado Springs. And she denounced the smear by liberals of conservative Christians who are now being dubbed, quote, Christian nationalists, end quote. This is a fairly new term in the lexicon. The left, she said, despises those who place a high value on Scripture, their relationship with God, are spiritually active, and are governmentally engaged. They're conservative. They're, they're watching what's happening in our country. These believers are applying biblical values in the public square. The goal of the left is not only to change how others perceive conservative Christians by labeling them Christian nationalists, but they want to change how we see ourselves, which I think was an interesting insight. She said that critics describe Christian nationalists as, quote, people who are haters. This is Michelle Bachman talking. They're, they're supposedly racist. They hate women. They're militaristic. They're violent extremists. As a matter of fact, they border on insurrectionists. And I believe that this term, this phrase, was birthed at some point after the January 6th event at the Capitol. I mean, I personally knew people who were there who supported Trump's policies, his appointments to the Supreme Court, his ability to bring back energy independence, lower taxes. He was doing a lot of good things for America and for the babies, and even saying no to transgender foolishness in the military. I knew people that were there. They were not part of that, you know, that small percentage of people who went into the Capitol in some kind of riot. That crowd, needless to say, were not comprised 100% by conservative Christians. There were all kinds of folks in there, and I think it was seeded by leftists and anarchists in part and, and some conspiracy theorists. But the left, the media in particular, wants to paint with a broad brush saying that that particular Polaroid snapshot in time on January 6th at the Capitol, where Donald Trump spoke extensively, is representative of this term Christian nationalist. But ultimately, as Michelle Bachman pointed out, conservative Christians love Jesus and their country. In fact, Michelle Bachman's talk at Colorado Springs before the gathering was turned into a family talk program entitled, It's Okay to Love Jesus and Your Country. It's a very compelling program. You can search for it at the website, Dr. James Dobson. Dot org. That's drjamesdobson.org, and type in the search engine either Michelle Bachman's name or It's Okay to Love Jesus and Your Country. Well, it's quite okay to appreciate your country and to realize that, you know, by God's common grace, he's enabled some liberties and uh, founded the nation upon certain principles that have yielded some good fruit through the years. So certainly that's the case. Um, yeah, I think it's the January 6th event that uh, has has got the Christian nationalists labeled such. And yeah, basically the people who are there outside of the conspiratorialists and the crazy um, anarchists and leftists and others, and uh, there were some Christians, some of whom had received wacky prophetic words that they needed to show up to take over America. And, you know, there's those people. But generally speaking, I would say that the crowd was made up of people who just liked President Trump and supported President Trump. 
it's easy to smear Christians when they show up in the same meeting with other wackos, but man, that's just a logical fallacy and uh, something that, of course, the leftists are going to give way to pretty easily. Michelle Bachman asked one pointed question, which I think is very revealing. Why? Why does the left want to demonize conservative Christians? She said, and I quote, they want to hold on to those levers of power. The greatest threat to their power source is Christian believers who get actively engaged and who vote, end quote. And she pointed to the fact that 91% of Bible-believing Christians voted for Trump in 2016. And according to Barna, there is not another interest group that votes with that level of unanimity. She said, because Donald Trump was president, this last year we saw the Dobbs decision overturn Roe v. Wade. That never would have happened if he would not have been president. And then in 2020, the turnout among spiritually active, governmentally engaged Christians, a whole category coined by George Barna, was off the charts. 99% showed up. Trump got more votes in the 2020 race than he got in the 2016 race. 60% of the public came out in 2016. 67% came out in 2020. That's the reason they want to demonize conservative Christians is because the left wants to hold on to their levers of power. And I think that's astute on her part. Well, let's get back to the question relating to uh, history and whether or not America was a Christian nation. I want to address that. Christian nationalism does point to the preference for nationalism over internationalism. And that certainly is a debate between the leftists and those who take on a more conservative view. And I would say those of the more conservative view do not trust man with a great deal of centralized power, whether it be in Washington, D.C. or the EU or the United Nations. Either way, uh, is internationalism better than nationalism? I would say no. We don't want a centralized power. We want a decentralized power. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's because of our view of the nature of man. The nature of man is such that he is not essentially good. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Therefore, we would prefer a more decentralized nationalism than we would internationalism, which, of course, is being touted by the internationalist socialists and the communists and others. Also, I would say that it's appropriate for a country like Zambia or Hungary to declare itself to be a Christian country. And here's the reason. There's always some religion or worldview that holds up the system of law that is brought into any particular country. Every country will claim a worldview. It will be an Islamic country, man-worshipping humanists, economy-worshipping Marxists, or Christians. You just got to pick your religion when it comes to the system of law that you're going to incorporate into any particular country. And here's the question, of course, that we need to answer. Does Christianity provide for a better country, more latitude for liberty than Muslims, Hindus, communists, etc.? And I would say, yes, it does. You're going to have Marxism and humanism as a religion. You turn your government into God. Get out of the way. It's tyranny after that. Even the Muslim religion tends to be a very top-down, coercive form of government. Therefore, Islamic-run countries, Marxist-run countries, humanist-run countries tend to deify the government and in the process increases the tyranny of that government over the people. Get out of the way. It's going to be tyranny. If you invite humanists, communists, socialists, Marxists, and Muslims to run your country for you. Much prefer Christians. Be back with more in just a moment on the Generations Broadcast.
You know, busyness has a way of creeping into our lives. As dads, it can leave us longing for moments of one-on-one time with our sons to simply talk. And those moments can be tough to come by. I get it. That's one of our top goals for our annual summer father-son retreat in the Colorado mountains. To provide quality time for you to connect with your son, can you think of anything more important for your schedule next year? If you are looking for an opportunity to bond, to really bond with your son, then join me, Kevin Swanson, and hundreds of other fathers and sons from across the country next August. But be sure to register soon because we max out the camp every year and we're already filling up. Go to coloradofatherson.com today and choose one of the two weekends available before they are full. Lord willing, I will be there and it will be a great opportunity to meet you and your son. This is your chance to secure the lowest price for this event. So go to coloradofatherson.com and register today. And we are back on the Generations Radio Broadcast looking at this scare piece produced by the Washington Post. And they refer to a number of homeschool curricula, including uh, ABECA, Accelerated Christian Education, Bob Jones University Press. And they say that these forms of history curriculum teach the first Europeans to arrive in Virginia and Massachusetts made a covenant with God to Christianize the land. Heaven forbid. It moves on. Today, yeah, Pensacola Christian Academy's website boasts that every class is taught from a biblical perspective. Science instructors are explicit about God's wonderful design, but students also learn the basic principles of chemistry. It is in the humanities, especially history, that former PCA students say they were indoctrinated into a form of Christian triumphalism in which American society was at its best when it hewed to Christian faith. And he's referring to Pensacola Christian Academy is what I'm I'm thinking PCA stands for. It was just pure propaganda, nationalist propaganda. This is Tyler Burns, a graduate of PCA. Former Republican President Ronald Reagan was treated as practically the fourth member of the Godhead. Burns recalled the white supremacist ideas that dismayed Burns could be found on Becca's home history curriculum as well. Implies that Southern landowners had little choice but to buy enslaved people to keep up with the demand of growing cotton and tobacco. Quote, the Southern planter could never hire enough people to get his work done. It reads, noting at the same time that only one out of 10 Southerners owned slaves. The drumbeat of white supremacy and Christian nationalism in the past few years has also convinced some conservative Christian curriculum writers that they should revise their materials and referring to not grass and others. Well, friends, um, I just don't think that's fair to jump to the conclusion that Abeka stands for white supremacy based upon these quotes. That's just not fair. Any logical person can think straight, hasn't walked into a woke indoctrination center and walked out a woke automaton, would recognize that. But Abeka is not giving way to white supremacy. That's not happening. Whether or not they're treating the slavery issue rightly, I, I don't know. I haven't done a full analysis, but, you know, Quoting seven words out of context isn't going to convince me that Abeka is filled with white supremacy. Um, so outside of that, I think we do need to be cautious that America has changed dramatically over the years. America had a basically Christian outlook when the pilgrims and Puritans were here. I don't think there's any question about that. I don't think anybody's questioning whether or not the Puritans, the pilgrims, were Protestants or have a basically evangelical view in terms of their doctrine. I'm not sure that anybody's going to disagree on, on those issues. Now, the question of whether, you know, the state of Maryland or the state of or the colonies in Maryland, the colony in Georgia, et cetera, had as much of a commitment to the Christian faith as did uh, Massachusetts. And there might be some debate on that issue, but I also 
would uh, suggest that America had a basically Christian outlook all the way through the 1770s. Uh, all the way up to 1783, I think of Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, George Washington, the Continental Congress, still holding to a basically Christian perspective. They would mention Jesus Christ. This, the, the, the reference to Christianity, Christian ethics, would come through the writings of Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, George Washington. They acknowledge themselves to believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as their Savior, Those sorts of comments would be made by some of the early founders of America. Now, granted, once you move into James Madison, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, you're moving more into Unitarianism and deism at points. But you have to draw a a very fine distinction. That's what we do in our book, American Faith. We analyze very carefully for Christian families the uh, the the quotes the commitments the the uh, letters the hymns etc written by John Quincy Adams for example we bring those out into uh, our book American Faith I'd recommend that to you because we do as best a job as possible to show that America had a very strong Christian foundation especially following the Great Awakening and that affecting Samuel Adams Patrick Henry and of course George Washington and the Continental Congress so. Early on, America had a basically Christian perspective of things that began to disappear at the turn of the 19th century. Now, it's also interesting here, I want to draw one more thing. These woke commentators, as what you read in this article from the Washington Post, are exceedingly moralistic. It's surprising for people who think they are animals evolved out of the cosmic slime in a chance universe where there is no God. So that does shock me sometimes when I realize, you know, the secularists who are fairly atheistic and certainly evolutionary in their outlook, are still very committed to some sort of an ethic or a moral. Not sure why, given that they are nothing but animals, you know, (laughs) or just cosmic dust floating around the universe of pure chance. But they do seem to have a very strong predetermined ethic that's pretty irrational at base. And I think this is the ethic, to try to understand their ethic. What is the ethic of the 1619 group and all the others? What is this ethic? Well, their ethic is white is bad and all other colors are good. Okay, that, that, that is my understanding of the ethic of the modern woke crowd. Now, n- let me just say, that's just plain insane. Okay? There's nothing on planet Earth that would give you an ethic like that outside of a purely racist view of history, a purely racist view of other people. Now, of course, from a Christian perspective, we would say that all of us descend from Noah and his wife. All of us descend from Adam and Eve. So ultimately, there is no distinction. There is no racial distinction between any of us. We are all made in the image of God. We've all descended from Adam and Eve. And therefore, there can be no multiple races and so to, to think in terms of skin color, to think in terms of racial background is very foreign to a, a Christian perspective. Besides, Jesus died on the cross, rose again for every tribe and nation, and his church is made up of every tribe and nation. So for that reason, we have no interest in any of these racial competitions. Neither do we have interest in competitions relating to materialism, communism, the idea that If certain groups of people have a slightly higher average income than other groups of people, uh, this is an inherent moral problem. No, no, no. We don't take that position at all. 
Now, before you launch into history, you analyze the significant and the insignificant, the good, the bad, the ugly, but you have to have an absolute ethical rule by which you determine what is right and wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is ugly. These secularists don't have the rule. They have no idea how to determine what is right and what is wrong. Was Andrew Jackson evil? Was Martin Luther King wonderful? Was FDR the best president that we ever had or the worst president we ever had? Now, again, if you're going to answer these questions, you're going to have to have an ethic by which to determine good and evil, right and wrong. And the only way to do that is by the revealed law of God found in the Old and New Testament. There's no other way in which we can determine right and wrong but by a divine ethic, a divine rule that is revealed to us through Scripture. And that's what we get in the Word of God itself. And here's one more thing. Some sins are of themselves and by reason of several aggravation more heinous in the sight of God than others. In other words, to determine which is worse, which is the bad, which is the ugly, which is the better, which is the worse in terms of presidents, in terms of policies, in terms of what has happened throughout human history, you're going to have to have a moral law by which you can gradate that which is better and that which is worse. So the only way to do that is by the scriptures themselves. I think that Christians should render due honor to the country, but, and I think we should be grateful for our history, but based upon what? The standards of God's word, the standards of God's law. Well, in our book, American God's Providence, Adam, we we, we try to be as honest as we can possibly be. We want to be honest with the sins of the North and the sins of the South. We lay them out. Kidnapping, enslaving Africans for working the plantations in the South, that's a sin. We, we, we detail that, but we don't ignore the seances going on in the White House <laughs> under the administrations of Pierce and Abraham Lincoln. We, we don't minimize that either. Witchcraft is a sin, too. Marxism that was on the rise in the North by the 48ers and others that were coming in from Germany. We don't minimize those sins or those bad ideas that were being incorporated into the North. You know, we're equal opportunity when it comes to identifying the sins of one group and identifying sins of the others. We do the same thing with Ukraine and Russia in the modern day. We do that on this program. But what, how do we define sin? Well, you've got to define sin by the standards of God's law, and that's what we bring out. Well, we've listed the worst moments in American history before, uh, the days that will live into infamy, and we, we've got these uh, identified in our book, America and God's Providence, where we bring God's law to bear in these issues. Buck V. Bell, Oliver Wendell Holmes, 1927, speaking of the eugenics agenda of the uh, American government at that time. And, uh, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes said three generations of imbeciles is enough. And therefore, uh, he did a, a forced sterilization or enforced a forced sterilization upon a, a woman of uh, lesser intelligence. Uh, so Oliver Wendell Holmes, 1927, three generations of imbeciles is enough. No, no, no. That's not the way you treat human beings according to God's principles. President Franklin Pierce's conducting of seances in the White House. We've talked about that. The 1973 decision, Roe v. Wade. Major problem, major problem, the slaughter of the innocents, a violation of God's law, the Lex Talionis, brings that out in no uncertain terms that uh, we have no right, nobody has a right to abort a, a child, to kill a child, even in cases of rape and incest. 
Okay, you think about the 2015 Obergefell uh, decision or the Warren Court's Engel v. Vital of 1962 banning voluntary prayer in public schools. But not just that. But think about Andrew Jackson's response to the Supreme Court ruling, Worcester versus State of Georgia, in which this Christian missionary was uh, opposing the, the government on the basis of the, the, the treaties that were set with the Creek and uh, Seminole tribes of Georgia. Uh, the idea that the governments could violate the treaties that had already been set out. This missionary had stood in the gap for these tribes and uh, had been placed in state prison for his pains. Well, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of, of the missionary, but it was Andrew Jackson who, uh, who came back with the statement, Supreme Court has ruled, let them enforce it, meaning that he was not going to enforce their ruling and therefore uh, we, we wind up with this, the Trail of Tears and the broken treaties with the Creek and Seminole tribes. That, my friends, was a sin. That was a violation of God's law. And uh, we certainly wanted to be the first to acknowledge that in our curriculum, America, and God's providence. Also, in 1655, Northampton County, Virginia, an African man, John Kasor, was declared a slave for life as a result of a civil lawsuit. He was enslaved by another African, it turned out. But that was one of the first uh, rulings in uh, American history that enabled uh, perpetual generational slavery. Very bad, very bad. Not not based on a, a Christian concept or the Christian ethic of the the law of uh, setting the captives free that uh, we find in Scripture. The whole sale slave trade brought about mainly by the Catholic Stuart kings, Charles II, James II, to maintain a monopoly on the North American slave trade through the 1660s and 1670s. Very shameful, very shameful. And so we're going to point out it was Charles II, it was James II who started this uh, this vision that brought this horrible, horrible slave-based economy into America in the 1660s, 1670s. And these were the men who, of course, slaughtered so many of the, uh, the Scottish Covenanters as well, some of the most cruel kings that have ever lived. And we point out James II, Charles II were the ones that uh, were uh, brought about some of these uh, most devastating consequences, not just upon the uh, Covenanters, but also upon the uh, African slaves. We, uh, we also list a number of major sins involved with the slave trade on page 576 of our American God's Providence text, but we're bringing the word of God to bear to identify what's wrong with it. That's something humanists and the socialists can't do for themselves. Well, we also deal with Shivington's raid on the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864. 230 Indian women, children, and elderly were killed in the heartless raid that occurred not far from where we live out here in the eastern plains of Colorado. Some of the northern generals extremely cruel when it came to the Native Americans. Shivington was a Methodist pastor, a scoundrel, never called to account by the Methodist church, who, by the way, has been very weak on ethics, especially when it comes to things like abortion and raids on Indian villages. Uh, Shivington married his son's wife. He committed forgery, stole $800 from a corpse, just a scoundrel of a man, horrible man. Uh, He was the man who brought about the Sand Creek Massacre, and we are not going to shovel that under the carpet. We're bringing that out for everybody to see and say this was a sin committed by uh, a a man who was part of the United States Army. Shevington married his son's wife, as I mentioned, and violated God's law in other ways as well. Major Eugene Baker, a drunk, led the raid on Native Americans on the Marias River in Montana. 153 women and children of the Pigeon tribe were killed, many of whom were suffering from smallpox at the time. And uh, he reported directly to Philip Sheridan, uh, a, a general for the U.S. Army. Sheridan wrote, if a village is attacked and women and children are killed, the responsibility is not with the soldiers, but with the people who crimes necessitated the attack. So he wouldn't take responsibility for these attacks. And... Uh, 
claimed he was innocent of uh, any shedding innocent blood. Uh, this general was a, a cusser. He's well known for cursing people. He'd say, GD, this or that. Extremely evil man. He was also the guy who wrote, uh, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. That, my friends, was General Sheridan. And, should, and there are names, there are streets that are named after Sheridan in the Denver metro area, I'll add. And I do think, as Christians, we should point out that there were scoundrels. There were ugly men. There were bad men in the history of this country. And we pull no punches in America and God's providence as we bring this out. Our worldview is not America, right or wrong. No way, no way. Our worldview is based on Scripture, biblical ethics. We call a spade a spade. We call evil, evil on the basis of God's laws, not man's laws, not woke laws, but God's law. Uh, By the way, I end one of the chapters on this issue Uh, this way. As long as America still feared God and respected Jesus Christ, there may have been hope for the cultural unity of this nation despite cultural differences. However, as the country rejected Jesus Christ and his atoning work and his law, all hope disappeared for any long-lasting unity between the various cultural groups. Nationalism, patriotism would never be able to create that unity. So that's the bottom line, my friends. The bottom line, fear God, keep his commandments. The bottom line, Respect Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As long as that happened for the nation, uh, this nation was doing well. And to the extent that this nation turned away from that, this nation has not done well. And that's where we are today. That's the challenge for our nation today, Adam. It's interesting that the Washington Post did not cite Generations Curriculum. They may not know about it, or they might think, you're too balanced. I'm not sure which. But may I recommend that you consider sending the very textbook that Generations has created to these two authors, uh, Bob Smiatana and Emily McFarlane Miller at the Washington Post. I think it would be eye-opening, and, and they might consider doing a follow-up on what Generations is up to, and I would hope that it would result in some additional purchases for homeschoolers who have not yet discovered Generations. I'm not sure I want to risk <laughs> their <laughs> reception or rejection of our (laughs) curriculum, Adam. But let me just say this, that we have a responsibility to be balanced, yes, but balanced on what basis? Balanced on the standards of God's Word. And uh, that's what we've attempted as a curriculum. Now, we're not saying that, you know, everything's equal and uh, everything's good for what's happened in this nation's history. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly, but the only way to determine that is by the standards of God's law. Well, that wraps up this edition of Generations, friends. Get our curriculum. Get American God's providence. Get American faith. Well, I believe to be about as balanced a presentation as we could bring you. Get these books. Get these resources at our website, generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.